What's 790,000 miles long, circles the globe over 30 times, and grows by 20 miles every single day? Do you know what that is? That's the continuous line of people who are apart from Christ. In the world today, nine out of every ten people do not know Christ as Savior and Lord. And of those nine, six of them have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. Of these six, there are, have, three have no one remotely nearby them uh, to even tell them about Jesus Christ. One third of the world's population lives near a church or a missions agency where they could hear the life-changing message of Jesus, but rarely do they. And the last one-third of the world's population has no gospel witness whatsoever. And our mandate is very clear, to go and make disciples of all the nations. In other words, to reach people with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is not an easy task. And no one ever said it would be. Certainly, it wasn't for the early church. Just think about all the persecution and opposition they encountered, the financial hardships, the beatings, the imprisonments, not to mention conflict among missionary team members like we talked about last week in the debate in the Jerusalem Council as to whether or not the gospel would be for the Gentiles. This, the amazing thing is that led by the Holy Spirit, the early church eventually got it right. And, and an unlikely missionary named Paul helped them figure it all out. As we come to the end of chapter 15 and head into chapter 16, we see the Apostle Paul embarking on a second missionary journey. And he, as he does so, we see God the Holy Spirit orchestrating all the events, putting them together and putting the teams together and doubling them up so that they would double their effectiveness. We also see a new vision, we see a new territory that's being evangelized, and we see new churches being established, some of whom were different than the very places and locations that the Apostle Paul had actually intended to go. He didn't even intend to go to some of these locations, but God's Spirit led him to these exact locations. And in these two chapters here, we see that God directs his mission. Now, it's God's mission. It's God's will to be done. It's God's work to be accomplished. And yes, God works through human agency, but it's God the Holy Spirit who sets the course. And God is the one who raises up the people who are going to carry on his mission. Paul and Barnabas are back in, in Antioch after they've left the Jerusalem council. And we pick it up, as you just heard in the scripture reading here just a few moments ago in chapter 15 where it says in verse 36, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back to visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul and Barnabas uh, have this sharp 
disagreement. And you may recall in the first missionary journey that they had taken John Mark with them. And we don't know why he left one-fourth of the way through this particular journey. He stayed with them on the island of Cyprus. But when they had reached the mainland, Acts 13, verse 13 tells us that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And all we can do is speculate at this point. Was he homesick? Is that why he left? Did he disagree with the, the gospel message going to the Gentiles? Because when they got to the mainland in the region of Galatia, they're going to be ministering predominantly to Gentiles. Was that what he was so upset about? Were the hardships of the mission itself with the long days and the opposition and criticism and persecution and the overall hard work of ministry plus the emotional toll that it takes on a person, was that too much for John Mark? Many theologians lean this way because John Mark was from an affluent background. And they think that he was a little bit softer because of that. And so the rigors of the mission and the opposition and all of that might have been too much for John Mark. We don't know for sure. All we know is that the Apostle Paul did not take kindly to his defection, and he was in no mood for him to join them on the second missionary journey. The work is hard enough without having someone bail out on you partway through. And if he can't be counted on, the Apostle Paul wasn't interested in having him on the journey. Now Barnabas, who by temperament and personality was probably more merciful, he wanted to take him along. And Barnabas' name means son of encouragement or son of consolation. And he was also John Mark's uncle. So he had a vested interest in in John Mark's well-being. Paul probably said, Mark has failed us once. He quit. This is no time for quitters. This trip is, is so important. We've got to have people who completely buy in to what we're doing, who can hang in there through the thick and thin, regardless of the difficulties. Paul just could not agree to Mark's presence on the missionary journey. Barnabas probably said, Paul, this is not right. Mark's a young man, and young people make mistakes. Are we going to give up on them every time they make a mistake? Yes, he failed the first time, but I believe he's a changed man. And I think he deserves a second chance. Now again, all of this is speculation on my part. Paul is clearly thinking about what's best for the entire team. Just like a coach who benches a player who's not holding up on their end of the bargain and is hurting the team, Paul's thinking of the team. Barnabas, on the other hand, is thinking about what's best for the individual. John Mark, and that he needs a second chance. And I must say that in any given situation, both of these perspectives could be right. And both of them could also be wrong, depending upon the situation. And the interesting thing in this passage is, it doesn't project a winner. It just describes for us how God increased the Gentile mission team from one to two. Barnabas and Mark go by boat to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas go by land uh, and northwest and then eventually west. And Silas was one of the men, if you recall, from the church at Jerusalem that the brethren sent to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas to authenticate the message of the Jerusalem council. Now, we have a slide of the second missionary journey, and uh, they'll put it up periodically, but you can see how they went different ways. You know, Paul, or Barnabas and, and, uh, and John Mark, they went to the island of Cyprus again, where they had gone on the first missionary journey, and then Paul and Silas go northwest and then west. 
Well, Paul and Barnabas end up in Derby and Lystra, and they meet there a young man named Timothy. And there's no indication that they ever knew Timothy beforehand or even knew of him. Perhaps he was a convert through their first missionary journeys there, or maybe he came to Christ uh, through those early converts after they had left. But Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, tell us more. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where the disciple t- named Timothy lived whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in the area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in their faith and grew daily in Numbers. Now, I mentioned this text last week in the message because he has Timothy circumcised, even though the Jerusalem council said that wasn't required for salvation. And they're going from town to town telling the churches what the Jerusalem council had decided, that circumcision wasn't necessary for salvation. So Paul has in mind here that the essence of the gospel isn't at stake. That's not the issue. Just opportunities to share the gospel. And Paul was able to do all kinds of things to open up opportunities to share Christ. And this happened to be just one of them because news could also be spread that he he was an uncircumcised uh, Jew because his father was Greek. So Paul took care of that issue. And Paul was able to do these things for the sake of the gospel. And the believers here in the church spoke well of Timothy. Now I wanna take a couple of minutes here to get a glimpse of who Timothy was. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 19 through 24. Here's what Paul is writing later on to the church at Philippi uh, about Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him, and who will show genuine concern for your welfare? For everyone looks out for their own interests, not for those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He says, Timothy's unique. There's no one out there like him. He says, secondly, that he's concerned for others. He's genuine. He doesn't do any of this for selfishness or for personal gain. Number three, he looks out for Christ's interests, for Jesus' interests. That's what he's concerned about. What's, what's, what's best in Jesus' uh, mindset here? What should we be doing? What would Christ do? And number four, he's proven himself. He works well with others. Well, God brought them together, and he expanded the team. And I want you to look with me, jumping ahead now, in Acts 16 to verse 10. And it says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. This is the very first time you see that first person plural uh, show up there, pronoun we. Who is we? Okay, well, we know we is Paul. We know we is Silas. We know we as Timothy, 
But there's another we here, part of the we. It's the author who's writing this. All of a sudden, Luke, the physician, joins the team with them. So you see God working again behind the scenes, piecing together this team with the realization that God is bigger than any of our issues in life or any of our problems in life. And Romans 8.28 says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his plan. Disagreements between missionaries? No problem. God brings good out of that. And he enlarges the mission team. And how many times do, uh, as well, do people in the midst of some crises or hardships or maybe facing a disease or perhaps just having the loss of a loved one, how many times through those circumstances do people have opportunities to share their faith? Numerous times. Some of the most effective witnessing we'll ever be involved in in our lives is when the chips are down. And this is because God directs his mission. And God is much bigger than our struggles or any of our problems in life. And God is the one who will raise up people who will carry on his mission. And by the way, it's how you are here right now, today. It's how you came to Christ and how you are even here gathered. It's how you people listening online are even part of this today because God has been directing his mission and he's reached you or he's, he's peaking your heart right now to make you curious about the things of God. And some of us here or listening online happen to be the most unlikely candidates of all. I know I am. I know that for sure. I, I was fatherless at five years of age. I was raised in a non-Christian, alcoholic, dysfunctional family. I was homeless at 18 years of age. And all of this is usually a one-way ticket straight to poverty. Not to mention, I didn't have a single relative who ever went to college, much less graduate from, co graduate from college or ever go on to get a graduate degree. Not exactly the place you'd be going looking for a pastor, and a pastor you wanted to raise up to pastor in a rural community. Friends, it is not an accident that you or I are here right now. This is God directing his mission. And we should take great comfort in this because it means that God is also gonna provide a new lead pastor over the next few years as I transition into retirement. In fact, the elder board is working right now diligently on this and will be presenting to our church membership in its July membership meeting a pastoral transition plan. And the hope and prayer is to have a seamless pastoral transition, to be able to go from one pastor to another without needing an interim and without interrupting the mission of the church. And remember, God is the one who raises up people and carries on his mission. And we see this in the rest of chapter 16. God doing just that. God is the one who's building his church. God is the one who gives the vision in the first place. Look at verses 6 through 10 of chapter 16. Paul and his companion traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Messiah and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You know, sometimes God closes doors. Sometimes God says no. And we generally don't like that. But Paul, he submitted. 
And he followed God's plan to go west. Do you you ever do that? Do you submit to God's plan? Or do you get frustrated when doors you think should be opening close? Or or you begin to question God in those moments? Or do you go on your own little self-pity party? How do you respond when God says no, when you think God should have a different answer? Verses 11 through 13 continue. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. You could see that up on the map up there. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of the district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now, all of the Jews had been exiled from the city of Rome in 49 AD by the emperor Claudius. And Philippi happened to be a leading military retirement city, sort of like, uh, for many people, Rapid City, South Dakota has become. But it was those who had served in the Roman legion, many of them, especially officers, they went to Philippi and they retired there. And Judaism itself hadn't been outlawed. It just wasn't allowed to be practiced in the city of Rome. So many Roman cities, especially Philippi, which was loaded with many of the commanders who were used to following rules and laws and, the, and order, uh, they were following the leading of Rome. And so worship wasn't happening for Judaism in the city. They had to go outside the city and do it. Also, secondly, you need to understand that those who were devout and practicing Judaism outside the cities of Rome wanted to be near water in order to conduct all of the worship rituals and the ceremonial cleansings that required water. So that's why it says here they expected to find this gathering. They expected to find a prayer meeting out there alongside the river. We pick it up in verse 14. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And if you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. What we know about this woman is because of that kind of employment and that kind of culture, and it was costly to dye and color clothing, many times it meant sacrificing food and other items that would be used in that dyeing process. This was a wealthy woman. This was a woman of means. Verse 16 continues through verse uh, 21. Now we get to encounter a slave girl. Once when we were going on to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling us the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said in the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. 
Now, Christianity was viewed back then as a sect of Judaism, as being just part of Judaism. And since Judaism had been expelled from the capital, even though it was technically still legal to practice, they were not allowed to proselytize their faith. So Silas and Paul are in a real pickle right now. Verses 22 through 24. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders to put them in the inner, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now you have to understand the very fact that they were thrown into prison meant that the beating wasn't enough punishment in and of itself. And the Romans were masters at punishment at beatings and treatments. Beating with rods 39 times, a bundle of rods, and if you've ever uh, been hit with something where you have rods like that together, it pinches the skin in between, so it can pinch and even tear or severely bruise the skin. And they would do it 39 times because they would beat you within an inch of your life. And so that's exactly what they did. And the fact that they were thrown into prison means that there's probably more coming. There might be additional beatings in the future when they recover enough to not die. There might be uh, a little bit of uh, more imprisonment, although the Romans didn't like to do that because they liked to be abrupt and quick and just and fast, or what they thought was just, in their, and brutal in their, in their punishment so that others would be deterred from doing those things. It might mean that they would end up being exiled to a, a, you know, a remote place, or it might mean that they could actually even be executed just like Jesus had been crucified. Look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Get this. They're worshiping God after just having the daylights beat out of them and potentially having more severe consequences to come in the days to come. And they're worshiping God and People are observing. They're listening to them. Verses 26 to 28. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prisoners' doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. This jailer cannot comprehend such character as these men staying in their cells because they didn't try to escape. And generally in a situation like that, the prisoners are going to rush the guards and overwhelm the guards and they're going to head off into freedom. If they can't sneak out, they're going to rush the guards. Well, verses 29 and 30 continue. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Perhaps the most important question to be asked in the New Testament. The jailer has seen the power of God manifested through these two guys and around them. Dr. Albert Moeller says, How often do Christians today find themselves being asked questions about the way of salvation? It's rhetorical. Probably not too many times. Probably doesn't happen too often. Perhaps, he says, many Christians today fail to exhibit the joy of the Lord and the joy of the gospel in the midst of their trials like Paul and Silas did that night. 
And perhaps, he says, believers in Christ today surrender their godliness and do not exude the fruit of the Spirit as Paul and Silas had throughout their entire time in Philippi. Verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Not that you might be saved. There's a, there's a statement of certainty here. You will be saved. If you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. Well, it continues in verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took him and them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the order, release those men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. See, Roman citizenship was beyond any kind of monetary value. You had rights as a Roman citizen, and one of them is to not be punished or sentenced without a trial, without giving an opportunity to defend yourself or represent yourself, and that didn't happen. So Paul leveraged all of this as their Roman citizenship to get out of a tight jam that they were in. Verse 38 continues. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. You know, all that we've looked at today, what do we see? We see God directing his mission. We see God building his church. And now Paul and Silas are going to move on to the next town and leave behind an unlikely band of disciples, including a rich businesswoman and her family, a slave girl who had gotten saved and, and, and her masters lost out on all the income from her, and a Roman jailer and his entire family. And all of this goes back to verse 9 here in chapter 16. When Paul, during the night, had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is the vision that God gave to Paul, a world in need that was calling out, help us, help us. So he goes and he discovers those who are in need. And who does he find? He finds a wealthy woman. He finds a slave girl. And he finds a jailer. And when you look at the world around you, which is the exact location where God has placed you. Where you are is where God has placed you for such a time as this. And when you look at the world around you, what do you see? And what is your response? Do you see people who are in need of the Lord? Do you see people who need the Lord in their marriages, in their lives, their families, their, their places of employment? Is your heart broken by their need? And are you ready to stand in the gap 
and tell them the life-changing message of Jesus Christ? Or are you one of those modern Christians who are just jaded and calloused and so upset about the culture and what's going on in the world that you've forgotten to tell people the most important message of all, the message of Jesus. See, God directs his mission in this world, which means that God raises up people to carry out his mission, and that includes you and me. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for this adventure you've invited us on this summer to look at the church and the missionary journeys that you sent uh, these early missionaries in the early church out on. And Lord, as we can see even that they had some disagreements, and yet those disagreements uh, led to a greater advancement of the gospel, we recognize, God, that even though your, your people, Christian people, can't always see things eye to eye, and some don't even recognize that there can be disputable matters uh, or, or, or even believe that their interpretations are inherent and when we're just humans and fallen and, and we're prone to mistakes. But God, you work in the midst of all of that and your spirit directs your church. And I pray, God, that we would be brokenhearted for the world around us that we would be brokenhearted for those who are in need and recognize what they need most is not politics. What they need most is not a, a, a better democracy. What they need most is Jesus. And Jesus makes all the difference. So I pray for your messengers to be messengers. In Jesus' name, 